everybody. Welcome back to the show. Uh, we have today Peter Fitchin on the show, and um, we're going to get in and talk about um, some recent research in fitness and nutrition. Um, but Peter, you've been on the show before, and you're somebody that we've learned a ton from over the years. So um, first, before we get into everything, can you just tell for anybody that's not um, familiar who you are and what you do? Yeah, so I have been kind of involved in the bodybuilding world for quite a while now. So I, I started kind of lifting and working towards my first show in 2002, did my first show in 2004. Um, so like April of this year will be 19 years since my first show. Um, won my natural pro card in 2012. I've competed as a pro in 2016 and 2020. Um, dieted down six times to stage lean. I've done 13 shows, I believe. Um, then I went to school for... Uh, 11 and a half years. I uh, got, got a master's, master's, PhD, all in stuff related to this. So I have a PhD in nutritional sciences. Um, and then on the coaching side of things, uh, it's been probably almost 15 years since I coached my workout partner for free, like the first person I ever coached for a show. And um, 2012 is when I incorporated my business in grad school. And then uh, since 2015, this has been full time. I've just been um, coaching. I coach probably 75, 80% people who want to compete or have competed or are dieting for shows and maybe about 20% general population, but vast majority um, find me through the bodybuilding world. Um, and that, other than that, I mean, I've, I've written a book. I travel quite a bit for seminars. I mean, in, you know, I, I, you were at one of my seminars in January and I got, I got two more in February. So um, yeah, so I, I, I basically, yeah, a lot of my, my life and things I do are related, I guess, to bodybuilding. <laughs> Yeah. When is the last time you competed? 2020. Oh, okay. So not too long ago. Are you planning on doing that again sometime soon? Uh, I mean, I will, I definitely want to in 2026 when I turn 40. Um, okay. Before then. Yeah. Cool. So you have, um, like you were saying, like very well-rounded experience. Cause you are coming at this from like a, a coach and a, an athlete and PhD researcher. So you have a ton of experience in pretty much every, like we could talk about any, <laughs> any topic today. And I feel like you could talk at least an hour on it. So, um, today we're going to go over the research that has been, um, more recent in the industry. So, um, one of the ones that you talked about at the seminar that you mentioned is the 10 rep max bench press study. And this is one of yeah. my favorites where, um, well, I'll let you, I'll let you explain it. So can you tell, um, everybody about that, that study in particular? Yeah, so they they did a study where they brought it was mostly like college age guys in, and they said uh, pick a thing that you normally do for ten reps on a bench press. And these were all people who have been lifting weights for some period of time. I mean, I, I can't remember if it was six months or two years or something something like that. They weren't like they weren't like you know twenty years in like me, but like they're they've been lifting like they they should have some idea yeah. of what bench press. You know, most most college guys bench press. And, uh, they, uh, then they still so they put that weight on the bar and they said, Oh, and they pushed them to actually go to failure. Um, and when they pushed them to actually go to failure, um, I believe it was something like 25% or something like that, uh, of people only got between 10 and 12 reps, you know, where you're going, you know, 10 reps is failure, 11, 12, you know, is one or two reps shy of failure. So that's a good sign. They're picking a good weight that they're training hard enough. Um, 
if I remember right, like it was like half the people got more than 15 reps um, where like they were doing sets of 10 with something they could have gotten to 15 or more, like just usually in the gym. And, you know, for a beginner, that's probably good enough to grow because if you're a beginner, you literally grow from anything because it's more than what you've been doing. Um, but you know, as you get more intermediate and advanced, like you're going to have to train harder than five, six, eight, ten 10 reps in reserve. Um, and so you are going to need to be within a couple reps of failure and you are going to need to be training harder. Um, and it just goes to show, you know, how many people, like how common it is for people to not train hard. And I think if you look around the average gym, you know, that's, that's pretty obvious, you know, like granted, everybody has different goals. Not, maybe not everybody is trying to get as big and as strong, you know, as they possibly can and build as much muscle as possible. But, you know, the vast majority of people who are in the, in an average gym who are complaining about not getting anywhere. Um, you know, number one reason is probably the nutrition sucks, but number two is they probably aren't training hard enough or their form isn't very good. Those are probably like the three most common reasons, you know, someone isn't progressing. And so I think it just goes to show, you know, just, you know, numerically, like how many people just simply aren't training hard enough if their goal is to maximize muscle growth. Yeah. So as a coach, like the people that are coming to you are going to be more advanced a little bit more so than just like looking around in an average gym. So looking at their videos, their forum videos, is this something that you'll still see with your clients? Yeah, I I've had clients where, you know, especially some that are a little bit newer to lifting and generally if someone's new to lifting, I don't, I'll, I'll, you know, if, the, if they're new to lifting, I usually recommend they go find someone in person, like, um, to yeah. make sure their form is good. And that like, they, they have like good fundamental, like knowledge and, and, you know, just to be able, just so that I can trust that if I write them a program, they're going to be able to do what I want them to be doing and push themselves hard enough and not break themselves in the process. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, usually, it, you know, if someone doesn't have some experience, like I'm like, I'll do your nutrition, but you got to go find someone in person to do training. Um, but assuming, yeah, they're, they're more experienced. I'll still see that in some people. I mean, um, I had a guy for a while, I have, this is a few years back. He would send me form videos and it, it, you know, it made absolutely no sense. Like I felt like I was just calling him out every single week because he'd send me these form videos. And it was, it was only on leg movements, you know, like he, he was like scared to push himself on legs essentially. And so, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, as you're getting closer to failure, even if you train one, you know, if failure is like bar drops on you, right? Like if you're doing a set of hack squat and failure is like, you can't get the rep and it comes back down. Going one to two reps shy of that is going to be very, very hard. And your rep speed is going to slow down by the end. Um, and you know, I, I had, I, I mean, I've, I had a guy where like every time he'd send me a video, uh, you know, it, the, the last, the last rep would be the same bar speed as the first rep. And I'd be like, we are not even approaching. You have like five more in the tank. So then it went from that to him trying going, you know, trying to push past that point And he just fail immediately. And I'd be like, that's not how it works. You don't, you don't go from like, you know, <laughs> rep like if rep six looks the same as rep one you don't fail on rep seven there's usually some grinders in between there and like you know it's hard not being there in person to be able to you know teach someone how to grind and how to push through that and I mean that's something you know I I would say I've gotten better at over the years I think it just comes with time right and just embracing some of the uncomfortableness of pushing to that point and realizing where you can take it you know and 
um, you know, oftentimes, yeah, I, there, there are certain people I've worked with where I'm like, man, I wish they could just come train like with me once so I can absolutely bury them and show them like, this is how, you know, this is training hard. Like, you know, especially, especially in situations where people are telling me, oh, I'm not really fatigued. I can do more and more and more. I never need to deload. I never need days off. Yeah. These aren't hard enough. (laughs) Yeah. You're not training hard. Like come train with me. Let's, let's bury you and you'll realize how hard you're, you're supposed to be training, you know, that you, you need that off day. Yeah. For, for most of my clients, I feel like that is even more beneficial than just checking over the form itself. Like somebody that's intermediate typically has good enough form that they're not, they're not going to injure themselves and they're going to get most of it from the movement, but it's always like, Hey, you have five plus reps left in you. I know it feels hard. I know it feels like you're going to get like stuck on this, but you can keep going. Like there's, I'm I'm looking for faces and slow, slow down rep tempo and things like that. And that's like the most valuable thing that I feel like we get from those videos. Absolutely. And I, so with that time, right? Like, you know, yeah, I've been lifting over 20 years now. I even think back to like 10, 15 years ago, right. When I was five, 10 years in, I can take a set way further now than I could back then, you know, just, I think just mentally being able to go like, go like, I think it just comes over time. Is there any tools that you use for your clients to help them learn that? Or is it just like, Hey, let's push it to failure on one of these. I don't know if I have any great tools, but you know, anytime someone's struggling with someone, something, you know, I like whether it be consistent, like training consistently or hard enough or their nutrition's not consistent, you know, a lot of times I'm working with competitors. And so I, you know, I try to remind them like, Hey, listen, like when you get on stage, you know, you're going to be stepping on stage next to people who take this seriously, you know, and, and if they beat you, uh, you want it to be just because they're better that day in the eyes of the judges, right? You don't, you don't want them to, you don't want it to be a situation where you're allowing them to beat you because you didn't do everything you possibly could to be at your best. Like you don't want to step on stage thinking, I wish I did this, or I wish I wouldn't have done that. Like, that's not what you want when you're stepping on stage. Like you want to know, like, this is the absolute best I could have been this day. I emptied the tank, gave it everything I had. Um, if they beat me, they beat me. But like, you don't want to be the person that's like, yeah, if I would have done this, I could have won. You know, like you don't want that, you know? And so I think, you know, yeah. some of that, you know, like, you know, coming at it from that angle, a lot of times if someone truly wants to do this and do well, you know what I mean? Like that can speak to, you know, thought, thought process along that lines can oftentimes speak to people. Yeah. That we just talked about that, uh, as we record yesterday on the podcast where we don't, we don't coach people to stage, but we do have a lot of people that will do photo shoots. And it's like the most valuable thing that comes from this is not the pictures at the end. It's like looking back over this and seeing that you've done everything that you can and you didn't leave any stone unturned. Yeah. Uh, That's like where that pride comes from, from that process. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, even with a photo shoot, right? Like if I have someone who's getting ready for a photo shoot, it, yeah, I mean, you you don't want to like you want to, those pictures are some of the best pictures you're ever going to have of yourself ever. Like even if you're a bodybuilder, like you know, with stage lighting and cameras and stuff, like sometimes the like, pictures on stage just don't reflect how good you actually look. And you know, all of my best pictures I have of myself are from photo shoots that I've done while I've been lean. And you know, is the same type of thing, right? Like you want it to be as good as possible. Like you want to take pride in that and be able to look back and be like, yeah, this is you know, I did this, you know, and and. I looked like this, you know, obviously it's not depending on how lean they're going, like, you know, stage lean is not sustainable or anything near that. So, I mean, you have to gain weight back. So it's like, Hey, I did this. I was there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so 
It, is there are there any major takeaways from that um, study in particular, other than just like watching the the videos from your clients and pushing them a bit harder there? Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that's one takeaway. I also think just for you know someone in general training in the gym, I think there's benefit, especially to someone early on in training, to like have you know really push yourself to true failure. Like not on every set, not all the time, but I think there's and, you know, I wouldn't do it on a squat. I would do it like on a hack squat or a pendulum squat or something like that, right? Where it's safe to fail. Um, and, and like really just incorporating some of those just all out sets where you do train it to that point where you truly do fail. Um, so that you kind of find where your limit is, you know, as safely as possible, right? Like not, not on a barbell squat, not on a deadlift, like, you know, something on like a machine where it's safer to do it you know, and really truly find your, your limit. Right. And, um, because then it starts becoming, once you start really realizing how far you can go and the limit, then, okay. Yeah. Do we need to train to the bar falls on us every time? No, but we got a better gauge of where that actually is so that like you can stop just before it, you know? Yeah. Is there any time that you program that in like specifically in the, within the mesocycle like do you do that right up front so they know the rest of the mesocycle where they should be or right at the end so they're deloading next yeah i mean there there are times i'll put it in a lot of times i do it near the the end like especially if it's a new movement like i wouldn't want them to go all out on something they're not comfortable with <laughs> you know like i feel yeah. like there needs kind of an easing in period with some new movements if someone's not comfortable you know new to someone or they're comfortable with i wouldn't want to tell them, yeah, just go all out the first time you ever do this move. Like probably not, but yeah, like near the end, after you've been doing it for a while, especially if I'm, you know, worried that they're not training hard enough. Um, you know, I, I will say working with competitors, a lot of them are like me where left to their own devices, they would drive the, you know, just run themselves into the ground. I mean, yeah. I have someone doing my nutrition. I have someone doing my training. I probably should have had that happen sooner than what I did. Um, well, nutrition, I've always had someone during preps and stuff, but like Cliff, I've been working with Cliff since 2014, just straight off season all the time. Um, and I, I've, uh, been doing training programming with Austin Stout for about a year and a half now. Um, probably should have started sooner. He and I see it on the same page a lot when it comes to training, like it's a really good fit for me. Um, and you know, yeah, I, I am guilty of just absolutely running myself into the ground. And so having someone out, you know, having other people say, no, you need to back off. No, you're losing too fast. You need to have a repeat. No, we need to die a break. You're ahead. Um, no, you are, you're, you're losing fast enough. Don't get more aggressive or like training wise. No, you need to take some extra days off. You actually need to deload, you know, don't add a bunch more volume. Um, yeah. you know, and, and I, I find that, you know, in the bodybuilding world, it's, it's about extremes. Right. And so you, you attract people like me who, uh, for whatever reason, just want to run, you know what I mean? Like we will just put everything into it and run ourselves into the ground. And so a lot of times I find myself doing the opposite with a lot of my clients, just especially the ones that are higher level competitors, really, really motivated. Like they will just run themselves into the ground and, and um, you know, and it, oftentimes it's, it's pulling the reins back and slowing things down and pulling them back a little bit from killing themselves, you know? And I mean, that that's usually, you know, for me personally, that's, that's where I benefit most from a coach. It isn't to push me harder. It's to keep me from being yeah. doing something crazy because I'll just run myself into the ground if left to my own devices. 
Yeah, for sure. I definitely have like some clients where like within their training, I'm putting in notes, like let's push it all the way to failure on the last set on these. And then other people I'm like, i never even mentioned that they're going to do that on their own. I have to have their RIR target set. Uh, is it, or do you use RIR targets for your clients? Not, not a ton. I'm not a huge fan of like trying to worry about being exactly this many reps shy of failure. Um, like I said, it, you know, it just training hard enough is important. And, you know, for those who just take everything to failure and trying to get them to just like stop before that, you know, but they'll mm-hmm. still come close. Like, I don't, I don't know. It, there's a lot of inaccuracy. And I find that like with myself, if I worry too much about like being specifically three reps shy of failure, I don't push myself as hard. I stop way sooner. Okay. I, I'm way more worried about not going to failure than actually pushing myself. Um, you know, I, I still like in my plans, like my personal plans, there, there may be some sets where it says, you know, uh, you know, stop like when I'm training in the gym, like, you know, stop a couple reps shy of failure. Okay. So I'm going to go till it's really, really hard. And then just stop before like (laughs) questionable reps then, you know, like where it's like, will I get this or won't I? Okay. Well, I'm within a couple reps now. Um, you know, I, I just, in the past when I've worried about being specifically this many reps or that many reps shy of failure, I just, I never trained hard enough. Like it was like, I was always too worried about going too far. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, so I, I'm not a huge, you know, I, I don't do a ton of being specifically whatever set reps of failure with clients. Um, cause most, most, like you said, like we, you know, like studies showed, like most people need to be training harder, not being told. Um, yeah. You know, because if your definition of failure is five reps shy of failure and someone tells you to take, you know, three reps off that. So you're three reps shy of failure. Now you're training eight reps shy of true failure and you're, you know, that, yeah, like yeah, I said, you're not you're, even getting those effective reps. Yeah. If you're a beginner, good enough. But like if you're intermediate advanced, then no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, so I know that there was a study about either progressing with weight or progressing with reps. Can you talk through that? And then I want to, I want to talk through like how you apply that with your clients too. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's a, a question that, you know, a lot of people will ask, right. Do I add, you know, five pounds to the bar next week? Do I add more, you know, I try to get more reps. Um, and so, yeah, there was a study where they, they split people into two groups, one group. Um, I can't remember what rep range they were training. And I want to say like eight to 12 or 10 to 12 or something like that. Um, and one group, when they could get 12 reps, they added weight, you know, and, and, you know, aim for the eight to 12 rep range. And when they were getting 12, they added weight the next week. Um, the other group just stayed at the same weight, the entire study and just aimed to get more reps. So by the end, they might have been, been getting 15 or 16 or 18 reps, you know, at that initial weight because they progressed reps. Um, and then at the end, they measured a bunch of different markers of muscle growth and body composition and and uh, they saw absolutely no difference in anything they measured. Um, and, you know, it goes to show that as long as you're training hard enough, um, you can progress. I mean, there, there's other research out there that shows that, too. You can progress within any given rep rate, you know, shouldn't say that. anywhere from like three to 20, five to 20, you know, something like that's probably a good rep range to train in. You're going to grow. I mean, even up to 30 reps, there's evidence you'll grow if you take it you know, close to failure. Um, and so you know, it's not a surprise that, you know, the group that added weight every time they got up to 12 reps um, and kept to keep that rep range in the, you know, eight to 12 or 10 to 12 range, um, that they grew the same amount as the group that just kept the weight the same and was maybe doing 15, 16, 18 reps by the end as they progressed. 
Um, because both will lead to growth as long as you're, you're training hard enough and close enough to failure. Yeah, very much ties in with the first one that we talked about. Like basically just train hard enough, get within the the two, three, four reps of failure at least, and you're going to grow. So knowing that, how do you set up your mesocycles with your clients? Are you saying to, to just add however you can weight or reps, or are you having a specific progression model? Yeah, I mean, most common thing I usually do is I tell people to start at the top end of like whatever rep range. So pick a weight you can get for the top end of the rep range. And then, you know, every week that you're hitting the top end of the rep range, add weight, you know, with good form, add weight the next week. You know, if you fall short of that, stay there, get more reps. So, you know, if you're training, uh, you know, three sets of, of eight to 12 on a movement, you want to start with the weight, you know, weight you can get for three sets of 12. Um, that's challenging, but you know, you can get for three sets of 12. And then that way, the next week, you, you know, maybe add five pounds to that. Okay, maybe I still got three sets of 12. Then maybe the next week, you add weight, and now maybe you only got 12, 12, 10. Okay, well, let's stay there and try to get, you know, maybe the next week is 12, 12, 11. Then maybe you get 12, 12, 12, and then you go up. And you know what I mean? And so, um, yeah, usually it's, that's kind of how I generally encourage them to, to progress. And then, you know, we may find that, like, okay, we're getting to the point where we can't really, we're not seeing a lot more progression. So we may drop reps a little bit. So, like, in that case, instead of progressing like 10 to 12 rep range, maybe we're getting to the point where, yeah, we've added more weight. Now we're hitting like 10, 10, 11 or something. And we just, you know, we're starting to stall out. Maybe we drop the reps then and say, okay, let's get eight to 10 now and, you know, keep that progression going for a few more weeks, especially if they're feeling good and they don't need to deload yet. Um, you know, and just drop the reps a little bit and allow them to add a little bit more weight and keep that going. But yeah. Generally, that's my my thought process is I guess I I probably am more so along the lines of we're adding weight if they're hitting the high end of the rep range, kind of like the group that added weight in that study more so than just staying at the same weight and getting more reps. Um, but if they're not getting the high end of the rep range, you know what I mean? We're staying there and trying to get yeah. more reps. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's how I will tend to do things too. And we, we do tend to use our, our targets with our clients, but I rather than like decreasing RIR across weeks. I feel like that just confuses people um, quite a bit unless they've been training for a long time. And it's essentially the same outcome. Like if we're going from three to two to one RIR, they're just adding a rep. But if you just say, let's add a rep or add some weight here as you can, then that tends to like take that thinking out of it and they just work a little harder. Yeah. There's still, you know, there's still a progression scheme where like intensity is going up, you know, as, as the training cycle goes. So um, yeah, I, as long as there's some sort of progression and they're not just doing the same thing every single week and going through the motions, like that's the important thing. Um, you can yeah. get, a, get there and, you know what I mean? A number of different ways, as long as there's, you know, you're, you, as long as you can look back in like six, eight, 10, 12, however many weeks you run, you know, a plan before you deload. Um, as long as you can look back and know that like, Hey, I'm, I'm moving more weight now, or I'm getting more reps or something has progressed here from the start. Like generally, you know, that generally things are moving in the right direction. Yeah. Okay. So uh, let's switch gears over to the nutrition side of things. There was some research on diet breaks and refeeds. Can you tell us about those? Yeah. So um, as far as refeeding goes, so, you know, one study that came out semi-recently is, is the, you know, multi-day refeed study that Bill Campbell's lab did where they had, they had two groups that were dieting one group, ate at the same deficit for seven days. The other group did five low days, two high days, and total weekly calories were the same. So the group that did five low days, they were lower than the seven, 
but then the two high days were higher. So it all averaged out, same number of weekly calories. Um, and they actually found in that study that lean mass retention was a little bit better in the group that did back-to-back refeeds than the group that didn't. Um, but there was a lot of variability from person to person. Some people responded really well and maintained quite a bit of lean mass where some didn't as much. Um, and you know, when you're working with someone and you give them a refeed, people can respond very, very differently to a refeed day. Um, you know, some people, you give them a small refeed and they see a massive jump in weight and it takes the rest of the week for it to come back down. Um, some people, you can give them a pretty large refeed and they see next to no spike in weight and they just keep on losing. Um, some people can handle back-to-back days. Some people, they'll handle one well, you give them a second and they see a massive spike in weight. Um, and then it takes the rest of the week for it to come back down. And so just in practice, I mean, I've seen people respond all kinds of different ways just from giving them different amounts of extra carbs for a refeed day. And so you know, it's not, I guess it's not super surprising that they saw a lot of variability in in how people responded in that study either. Um, And then, yeah, extending it further, you know, a diet breaks essentially, you know, refeeds one day up around maintenance, back-to-back refeeds are two days up around maintenance, and a diet break is a week or a couple weeks or several weeks up around maintenance. Um, And so, when you diet, you know, diet break, diet break data has been pretty mixed at this point, whether, and when it comes to whether or not diet breaks help keep metabolic rate hormones up, help fat loss, muscle retention. Some studies say yes. Some studies say no. Um, I think the jury's still out. One thing that is pretty uniform across the board though, is adherence is generally better when you incorporate diet breaks and refeeds. Um, that's like the biggest benefit you see, you know what I mean? To eating some days up around maintenance is you're breaking up someone's cut. So like, you know, it, it can be pretty daunting going into like a five month cut and someone tells you, yeah, your food's just going to be low every single day. Like that's going to be pretty daunting and pretty hard to stay consistent with. But if someone says, yeah, you're going to have like a refeed day each week. And uh, as long as we got time, we're going to work a couple of diet breaks in where we eat at maintenance for a week or two. And And you know what I mean? We're going to break this up a little bit. It makes it a lot easier to stay consistent. And so you see that in these studies that there's less dropouts in refeed and diet breaks groups. There's more consistency, more adherence. Um, And then with the diet break stuff too, there is some evidence that performance in the gym might be a little bit better as well. When you give someone, you know, bring them up to maintenance for a week, glycogen stores are a little more full. You see a little bit better performance in the gym. Um, And like I said, the, is it better for fat loss, muscle retention, uh, metabolic rate hormones, mixed data at this point, but, but the adherence piece is huge because, you know, and that's the reason I incorporate things like that and try to encourage clients to take longer preps and give themselves more time than they need so that we can have time to have repeat days and diet breaks and, and time periods of time where food is up around maintenance, because that oftentimes helps adherence and helps them push through the really hard parts. And, you know, without adherence, like, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? If someone can't stay consistent, yeah. they're never going to get there. Um, and so, yeah, sure. Adding a couple diet breaks along the way or some refeeds increases the amount of time it takes you to get to your goal because, you know, it, it's, you know, six days a week in the deficit rather than seven, or, you know, you get a whole week out of a deficit. So you're, you're essentially quote unquote, losing time that could have been in a deficit, right? That's how a lot of people will view it, you know, and, and they'll try to push back. But in reality, by incorporating things like refeeds and diet breaks, a lot of times they stay more consistent and the cut goes actually quicker than it would have without them because they're able to stay more consistent, you know, versus 
a cut where they just tried to stay low the whole time and have a bunch of inconsistencies. Yeah, so I'll, I'll hear some people say like, those are going to improve adherence. Other people are, and I know that this is just like a lot of individual variants, but other people will not use them because it kind of like breaks that flow and gets them out of the the routine of the deficit. Have you found that with any of your clients? Yeah. I mean, I've had a couple of clients over the years, a couple different clients where either they just simply can't stay consistent when you give them more food. And so we just go low the whole time. Um, because their adherence is better. Um, or we just do a refeed every like second, third, fourth week, because I know they're just going to eat more than I tell them, you know, so that way we can actually net some progress before <laughs> the next one. Um, I've also had situations where, I mean, I had a client where I would give him like 60, 80 grams more carbs. It was like nothing. And he would gain so much weight that it would take the rest of the week for it to come back down. He'd never get anywhere. And I had to take him on his word that he was staying consistent. And if, you know, and if he was, then we weren't getting anywhere. And once we pulled him out, like he actually started losing. So I, you know, I'd like to think he probably was fairly consistent. And uh, so I've seen that. The only part where that kind of gets hard um, and kind of puts you at a disadvantage when you're prepping, if you don't use any refeed days or diet breaks or anything like that, is when you start getting towards the end and you start looking at like peak week and peaking stuff. Um usually the last someone starts getting around like a month out or so, and they're getting really lean. We start looking at, well, how do they look in relation to their refeed? Do they look better the day after two days after do they look worse for several days after, you know, and then tighten back up. Yeah. Um, Everybody differs a little bit in that. Right. And so you start looking at some of that and, 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 you know, without actually having refeeds incorporated, you're guessing a little bit more that, you know what I mean? That last week. And I'm not a fan of guessing the last week, like your peak week and your carb load should be fairly predictable. Like you should know, like, yeah, I know that like when I have this many more carbs, I look really good afterwards. And so it's predictable. It keeps the stress low rather than like trying something completely off the wall, different new, where you have no idea how you're going to respond. And so that is one place though, during prep that I've found like in practice, it can make things more difficult if somebody can't refeed and stay consistent and like to be able to see how they respond to it. We don't have a good gauge of what to do the last week. And then I also worry about their ability to stay consistent with that last week. And, and uh, there may be some other relationship with food things they maybe need to address if, you know, if that's the case. Yeah. That's kind of along the lines of what I was going to ask with that is like the, the clients who, do hold weight a bit longer or get more bloated or puffy whenever they incorporate more carbs. How do you carb them up before a show without that happening leading up to it? Usually earlier in the week, if we do it. So like, I just give them more time. Yeah. So if if you're someone, you know, if there's someone who we see, okay, well, two days, the day after you refeed, you're kind of puffy two days after you look great or three days after you look great then we'll probably do some sort of load where like the highest carb day is like Wednesday or Thursday. That way we can bring calories or carbs, you know, back down and, you know, they'll look really good by, by show day. But I've also had, I mean, I had a client where like, it was like four or five days after her high day and it wasn't a very high, high day that she looked best. And I mean, she was someone whose food was super low, um, really, really good pro. Um, but her food was super low. Uh, she didn't get flat like you'd expect when somebody's food's that low. Like, like you know, just it was actually pretty crazy. You know, you could take her food low and she wouldn't flatten. I'd be 
just so flat if I ate, you know, as low as she did. Most people would. Yeah. Um, if carbs that low. But with her, we didn't even carve her up. Like we literally just ran low days in because she wasn't, she looked worse for four or five days after. I think we gave her a little bit more fat, but I mean, other than that, just to get a few more calories, but like we didn't do anything drastically different. You know, she always did great. Um, just cause we couldn't, you know what I mean? Like she would look worse after, but yeah, it's, if you're going to, if you know, you, that's where you're going to want to like front load or mid load or something like that, or do a less aggressive load. If, if someone doesn't look good immediately after carbs and not everybody does, um, not everybody is, is me, right? Like, you know, I, I look awesome. I, I rapid backload into all my shows. So I oh, really? four days and put a, down a thousand grams of carbs or so, or thousand eleven hundred ish Friday. Um, and I get more from that approach than anything I've ever tried over the years. I, I get so much more fullness, but in order to do that, you have to be able to look, you have, you know, your body has to handle the carbs well, and you have to look good afterwards. And your GI has to be able to handle that much, you know, like going through, because I've had people where, yeah, they could handle a ton of carbs in a day, but their GI couldn't handle, you know what I mean? Pushing that hard. Um, and so everybody's a little bit different. And so I think that's where you got to test things out ahead of time. And it, it's to your advantage to be ready two to four weeks out so that you can test out some of this stuff ahead of time. Like, you know, if your regular high carb days, like 300 grams of carbs and you look pretty good after, well, what happens if you go to four or 500? Like you want to have time to test that out. And if, if you look like a bloated mess after four or 500 grams of carbs and maybe three is better, um, you need that time to like tighten back up. Like you can't just, you know, and so you don't want to be just blindly doing that at the end. I mean, I, I think, you know, having extra time is, is beneficial. So one of the questions that I had with that is what do you think is the difference between those people who just respond super well or the, and, and the people who are actually sticking to their diet and eating the, the same things maybe, but they're, they're just more, more watery or it just doesn't affect them as well as it does the others. Do you think it's like a GI thing, an insulin response thing? What is going on there? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure. Those are both options. Um, you know, I, I think you looking at like adherence probably needs, you know what I mean? Is probably something yeah. as well. I feel like, you know, usually on a refeed day, like I try the people who tend to struggle the most are the ones who try, who like turn their refeed day into it, like a quote unquote cheat day. Right. And make it drastically yeah. different than their normal routine. Um, normally on a refeed day, I encourage people to continue eating the same number of times a day, still having some of those staple foods, eating a majority of your food from nutrient dense foods. And yeah, you got more carbs. That doesn't mean your whole day needs to be pop tarts and ice cream and donuts, you know, for those carbs, like still eat the rice and potatoes and oatmeal and fruit and vegetables and things you've been eating for most of your carbs. And yeah, if you want to fit in a serving or two, a low fat ice cream or some popcorn or, you know, you know what I mean? Something you couldn't fit in on a regular day. In addition to that, with some of those extra carbs, that's fine. But like try to maintain some of that same structure that you're eating around the same times a day and that you're having some of those same staples. And, and, you know, that a lot of times just from an adherence standpoint can, you know what I mean? Help. Um, I, did, yeah. I just find that usually if someone tries to like drastically change everything they're eating and their, their meal schedule and all of that, like that's where it just completely goes, falls apart. 
Yeah, we we try to um, get around that by first explaining that, but then also saying like, hey, this is a time to practice maintenance because most of the people that we're working with are just, they're dieting down and they want to maintain that longer term. So we'll yeah. say, hey, this is a time to just increase the amount of foods that you're eating, but keep the food sources the same. And yeah. that's going to be like a preview of what you're going to do long-term with maintenance after this diet is over. Yeah. And, you know, regardless of, of day, like I actually, with clients macros, I'll send along like a fruit and vegetable minimum um, because people notoriously suck at eating them. And there are probably a number of, you know, there are all kinds of people with probably a ton of micronutrient deficiencies because they don't eat fruits and vegetables. And they think, oh, I'm just going to take this pill and that'll take the place of it. And really whole food is usually always better than a pill. Um, multivitamin is great. Like if you're dieting for a show, I think it's really, really valuable to try to prevent major deficiencies when you can't have a variety of foods as easily. Um, but you still should be trying to have variety. And so like, I usually, you know, for someone dieting, I may say, okay, well get at least uh, two servings of fruit and at least three servings of vegetables a day, you know, a day into your macros. Um, and so I kind of control where some of that's coming from. Um, and then also, you know, I try to encourage them to have a variety of colors of fruits and vegetables because different colored fruits and vegetables are going to have different nutrient profiles. So things that are kind of black, blue, purplish, will have a different nutrient profile and things that are green. And that'll be a little different than things that are red, orange, yellowish, you know, and trying to eat different colors of fruits and vegetables throughout the days as well. Um, because, you know, yes, you're dieting for a show, but like overall health still matters. If you have nutrient deficiencies, um, you're probably not going to make as good a progress as you could be. Yeah. I think that people from the outside looking in probably think like, Oh, bodybuilders or like coaches or anybody who's serious about their physique doesn't struggle with that. They're probably eating fruits and vegetables all the time, but it, that's not the case. A lot of times, like with bodybuilders, they'll reduce that just so that they can eat more rice and like other things that are going to digest a little bit quicker. And then I find on the gin pop side, but the people who are still serious about their physique, it's more like the IIFYM type of foods. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, you know, if you ask me, you know, what, what, what should people do? Follow meal plan or IFYM? I would say it's probably somewhere in between. Um, I don't think that following a set meal plan and eating the exact same thing at the exact same time of day, every single day for months on end is necessarily sustainable or healthy. You probably are going to develop nutrient deficiencies just from not having any variety in what you're eating. Um, but, you know, I, on the other end of the spectrum, I don't think that um, eating a bunch of donuts and pop tarts and ice cream and then protein shakes to, you know, and making it work to hit your numbers is probably going to lead to the best results you can either. And so it's probably somewhere between the two, you know, I, there's pretty good evidence that you want to have structure to when you're eating each day. You know, you don't want to eat usually things like, uh, you know, blood glucose regulation and appetite, um, usually aren't as good if like the number of meals and timing of meals are all over the place. Um, there's even some evidence that can affect sleep as well. Um, and so, you know, just trying to, okay, like in my case, I usually eat five meals a day. Um, are they the exactly the same time? No, like I'll have client calls or work for my workouts a little later, or whatever, you know what I mean? So like they maybe shifted an hour or two, you know, either direction, but generally I'm, I'm eating five times a day, um, every day. It's not like I'm eating two times this day and six times this day. And you know what I mean? Like that, that's not going to help things like that's going to be worse for things like 
like I said, like appetite regulation and potentially sleep and, and blood glucose control and things like that. Um, so there, there is something to be said for more stand, you know, normal pattern of meals. I do think also that, you know, at least 80, 90% of your food should come from nutrient dense foods. I think eating fruits and vegetables is important. Um, and, you know, I generally encourage clients to have a protein source and a fruit or vegetable at each of their meals as kind of the backbone and then add from there. Um, and so I think things like that are important, but that's not a meal plan, right? Like that, that's saying eight yeah. protein sources. What protein source do you want to have? Like, I don't care. Like have, have a protein source. You know what I mean? Like there's that flexibility, what fruit or vegetable? I don't care. Have one you like, you know, have some variety with it. And then other stuff too, right? It's 80, 90% nutrient dense. You want to fit in a piece of chocolate after you've got all your other bases covered for the day. Fine. You fit it into your day, you know, but like, you know what I mean? So it's about finding that kind of middle balance ground, right? Where there is structure um, and nutrient dense foods are important. Um, but it's, it's not like this at this time, this at this time, this at this time, because that's not going to be sustainable and over the long term. Yeah. So with the, the more like IFYM style of eating, I feel like that really got big, probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight years ago. And maybe throughout that time, do you feel like there's any effects that you're seeing now from that? There might not be, but I was just curious, like if you're checking lab work or like anything like that, do you feel like there's any downstream effects that we're seeing from, from that I mean, popularity, probably not really because if people corrected some of those deficiencies and are eating, you know, yeah. more well-rounded diets, um, you know, you probably aren't going to see some of the hormonal effects of some of these deficiencies, but you know, yeah, I, I think it's funny because in bodybuilding, you know, it, it attracts extremes. Right. And so when I started yeah. 20 years ago, everybody followed set meal plans and we had cheat days and we, you know, like it was good foods, bad foods, you know, all of that. Right. And then, you know, flexible dieting started because people realized like, Hey, I, I want to have carrots today instead of broccoli, as long as, you know, it's the same number of carbs and calories that should be okay. You know, so that's where it kind of started. And then it just got skewed into this, like, eat a bunch of crap and protein shakes to, you know, and, and I mean, those people never usually, there were some genetically elite people that could diet on a ton of food and do stuff like that and look pretty good. Um, most regular people are going to be so freaking hungry, you know, if they're not yeah. eating, you know, foods and things like that. Um you know, I, that's, you know, those are all, you know, someone, if someone's hungry and they're complaining about hunger, the first places I'm looking are, okay, are you drinking any of your calories? You know, eat them. Where is your fruit and vegetable intake? What are you eating for starchy carbs? Like, are, are you eating, you know, rice cakes and cereal and bread, or are you eating like something more filling like oatmeal and sweet potato, you know, something like that. Um, and then, yeah, any of the other stuff that like has calories but gives you absolutely no food volume. So like flavorings and foods or dressings or sauces or whatever, um, you know, and, and like, those are the first places I look because if you can incorporate more whole foods and more of the nutrient dense stuff, then um, you're generally going to feel more full and then you're going to stay more consistent as well. Yeah. Luckily I think it's come back a little bit from that extreme. <laughs> Everybody who really got into that a few years ago has kind of like come back the pendulum has swung a little bit more toward the middle, which is great. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, that's where I'm always trying to encourage clients like middle, like even if there's someone who, you know, 
most of my clients, I usually encourage them, like cook food in bulk ahead of time, plan your days out ahead of time. You know, if you're dieting, especially if you're dieting for a show, like we're all busy. Like I work from home full time and I can tell you my last meal was uh, potatoes, broccoli and chicken that was all cooked ahead of time and just heated up. Um, I don't yeah. have time to make all this stuff fresh um, during like a work day. And so, uh, you know, I think, you know, so those are things I you know encourage people to do. And so for someone who's prepping food, maybe for the whole week, maybe every, maybe like their food for most of the meals or maybe all the meals, depending on how they do it, you know, looks the same day to day. But then I encourage them to have some variety the next week, you know? So like if you had carrots and broccoli as your vegetables this week, like have, I don't know, peppers and some green beans next week. You know what I mean? Like have yeah. like swap some of the foods around, you know, because it's, it's unrealistic to, you know, for most people to be changing everything they're eating drastically from day to day. And a lot of times it makes it a lot harder to stay consistent too. Like it actually hit your numbers. Like I think there has to, most people do better when there's some structure and some staples and, you know, like I said, some of the aspects of like meal plan, you know, meal planning, but like still having that flexibility to move things around and, and, you know, encourage, like I said, encourage them like, okay, if you're going to eat the same thing for breakfast and lunch, you know, your first three meals, because you're at work and busy or whatever, you prep them all ahead of time for the week, swap around some of the vegetables, swap, maybe the protein source, have turkey this week, have chicken next, you know what I mean? And, try to have some variety in the food you're eating. So it's not always the exact same thing. Um, or, you know, in that situation, you'll have some variety in like your fourth or fifth meal, like stuff you're eating at night. Um, so that it isn't always the same thing every day of every week for months on end. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my clients listening might be rolling their eyes right now because this is something that I say to them probably every single check-in. So uh, they've, they've definitely had that beaten into their heads. Um, so yeah. with the research over the last two, three years, is there anything that has majorly changed how you view your own coaching or you as an athlete? Um, I don't know. I would say majorly. There's always stuff that I, I would change and tweak and things like that. Um, but I think one big thing I probably have changed within the last maybe five-ish to seven-ish years um, is focusing a lot more on like daily activity and eat and movement throughout the day. Um, you know, I used to think it was so pointless. Like I remember I was at, I was presenting at, uh, ACSM Midwest conference in Indianapolis when I was in grad school, so maybe like 2011 or 2012 or something like that. And I was doing uh, blood flow restriction research. And so that's what my talk was on. And somehow I got stuck in an oral presentation session where all the other speakers were talking about like some of the early accelerometry stuff. So stuff that led like early research leading into like Fitbits and Apple watches and some of the technology there. Um, and so I was, I just remember sitting and talk after talk about like math and engineering <laughs> and physics and whatnot of all these algorithms and things like the hell, why do I care? Like, I, I was like, first off, I have no idea what they're talking about. This has nothing to do with my research. Second off, I don't care. Like, why do I care? You know, and here we are like, you know, a decade later and like, I'm like, oh yeah, like I use this all the time with clients now because in reality, like 22, 23 hours of the day, you're not in the gym, you know, like what you're doing outside the gym matters a lot, you know, in terms of energy expenditure. And so, um, and now there's more and more data coming out too, showing like health, adverse health outcomes you know, especially when you start getting below like seven, 8,000 steps a day, like there's nothing magic about 10. I mean, 10 is better than seven or eight for health outcomes. But like, if you can at least get to seven, 8,000 a day, like health outcomes are better, you know, like overall health is going to be better. 
Um, and, and so, you know, but I started paying attention to it because I was finding and just personal experience too. end of prep, you feel really, really tired. Food's low. You're very lean. You feel tired and sluggish and you don't move. Like anybody who's listening to this, that's been stage lean right now is like shaking their head. Like, yep, get it. Totally get it. You know, you, you feel, you just don't move. You don't want to move. You're too tired. You do what you have to do for your workout. You get through your work day, you do whatever cardio you got to do. And then you come home and you sit. Um, and, but what happens is it's not uncommon to see someone who's getting 10,000 steps a day, just living life at the start of prep, get like 6,000 a day by the end of prep, because they don't move, you know, like they just, they stop moving outside the gym. Um, and so that's a pretty large decrease in energy expenditure. And so I was running into situations with clients where we would make adjustment after adjustment after adjustment. And they weren't losing. And I'd start asking them about like, why, you know, are you, are you tracking accurately? Like, are you doing all this cardio? And, you know, I, and eventually I started asking, well, what's the rest of your day look like? And I was finding like a theme that they weren't doing anything. Like they were doing less and less and less during the rest of the day. Um, and so then I started saying, okay, well, let's, let's set a step minimum of whatever, right. To keep them moving and make them have to get up and walk and move around stuff throughout the day. Um, and then, you know, I started using it with more and more clients and, I like it because, you know, it's low intensity, so it's easy to recover from. You can also do it anywhere, anytime. So it's not more time in the gym. Like none of us bodybuild for a full-time job. I mean, I think I've made, maybe I made $1,500 or $2,000 competing as a natural pro. Like I've, I've made money doing my hobby. That's cool. Like I, I trust me, like that, I think that's awesome, but like yeah. not quitting your day job for that. There's a lot right. of other things <laughs> in life. Um, and so, you know, I... Uh, you know, I, I think it's important to, you know, have the ability, you know, I mean, it's not more time on a treadmill in a gym. Like I'm always encouraging people if we're bumping their steps up, I guess you're essentially adding low intensity cardio or whatever, right. However you want to, whatever you want to call it. Right. But if you're bumping someone's steps up from like 8,000 to 10,000 a day or something, just to get them moving more, burn a few more calories. Um, I always encourage them to try to get outside, try to do something fun. There, there are health benefits to being outside and seeing sunlight. There are benefits to mood. There are benefits to sleep-wake cycle. There are benefits to getting more vitamin D. Um, there are benefits to stress reduction. Um, you know, in addition to like, hey, you're you're also increasing energy expenditure and and you know, get out and like play with your kids, walk your dog, like keep living life. Like even if you're not tracking steps during prep per se. Um, you know, if you're dieting and you're not tracking steps, just making a conscious effort to ask yourself, well, what would I normally be doing before I was dieting? Like, like activity wise, like normally, you know, if the store is four blocks away from my house, would I normally be walking there? You know, when I wasn't dieting and now I'm driving there, like, no, I'm going to keep walking there because, you know, like, like that type of thing. Right. Because it can be mm -hmm. so easy just to, you know, have activity drop without you even realizing it really when you're super tired and sluggish. And so I think focusing a lot more on that, um, I think is, is something that I I've definitely changed in the last, probably the last five to seven years. Yeah. I feel like that's made a big difference for myself and my clients too. just placing a heavy focus there and having that goal and something to, to strive for daily. And just having like a 10,000 step goal per day feels psychologically so much gentler than like, yeah. let's get in an hour on the treadmill today or two 30 minute sessions on the treadmill. Like that's yeah. stressful, but just like, Hey, like get out and walk your dog, get out and, or like sweep the house, like things like that all add up through the day. And it makes it so much easier. Yeah. And 
you know, if you start looking at some of like, you know, a decade ago, hit cardio was the thing. And, and mm-hmm. I mean, I did a prep in 2012 where I did four sessions of hit cardio a week and I trained legs twice a week and my food wasn't high and I was lean, you know? And so I would, my, I was just dead the entire time. Like my, my legs felt dead always. Um, like I go into the gym for leg day and I wasn't recovered at all. I didn't have any push yeah. behind anything, you know, that's not going to help you retain muscle and, and like look the best you can on stage. I mean, I still did well and won a pro card, but like how much better could I have looked, you know, could I have looked had I not, you know, I actually been able to put more intensity into my leg days. And so, you know, you start looking at some of the research on hit versus steady state. That was one of the other studies I talked about too, in, in my talk. And, you know, there's starting to be some evidence that that muscle growth, you know, if you're going to add cardio to lifting muscle growth might be slightly better with steady state than hit because I, I just from a practical standpoint, you know, hit is harder to recover from. It's more demanding. It's more beating on the joints. Um, you know, I, I'm someone who's been lifting over 20 years. I have a lot of mileage on my joints. Uh, I'm stronger than I've ever been. Uh, but you know, I'm closer to 40 and 30 with 20 years of mileage. And so I'm not looking for more ways to beat myself up. Like I, I want to recover from lifting. And so I think the fact that, you know, telling someone to walk a couple thousand steps is low intensity movement. Um, I I think there's benefits to that over saying, yeah, just go do like some sprints or like hit the stair mill for a half hour because, you know, that person who's doing the sprints or the stair mill or whatever, they go to try to squat the next day and their legs aren't going to be fresh and recovered. You know, someone who's young and healthy, you tell them to walk an extra couple thousand steps today they do it throughout the day. It's not super high intensity and they don't even know the difference when they come squat the next day. So that performance stays up and that's going to help them hold on to more muscle too. Yeah. That's a huge difference. Well, we are coming up on time here. I think that this has been a great conversation about um, a few of the studies that have come out recently. Um, before we sign off, just let everybody know where they can find you and anything that you'd want to plug. Yeah. So, um, you can find me, I'm on Instagram at fitbodyphysique. My website is fitbodyphysique.com. Uh, my email fitbodyphysique at gmail.com. I keep it pretty, pretty uniform. So people can find me. Um, you can also check out my book. I wrote a book with uh, Cliff Wilson. It's been out maybe like four or five years now. Um, bodybuilding, the complete contest prep handbook. Um, you can find it on Amazon for like 30 bucks. It's not expensive, but um, yeah, it's, it's done really well. It's been translated into German, Chinese, and Italian now too, which oh, is that's really cool. cool. Yeah. I got copies here in like languages. I, I'm hoping it's translated, right. I don't know what they say, but it's really cool. <laughs> that, you know what I mean? That I have copies of my book in other languages. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, check that out if you're interested. Um, but yeah, those are probably the best ways to find me. I don't have any, like the, I don't, know, I, don't I don't really Twitter or Snapchat or anything that like anything like that. So. All right. Well, thank you for being here and thank you to everybody listening. We will see you next time.